0: Uh, the London Zoo, was promoting their new exhibit, and on the, the title above this new exhibit was Warning Human Beings in Their Natural Environment. And it was literally an exhibit of eight Homo sapiens who had gotten picked through an online contest who were in this exhibit right next to another exhibit of various primates, monkeys and apes and and so these human beings were sunning on a rock, they were playing board games, they were waving at the spectators as they came by, and, and there was a little sign next to the exhibit that talked about their, their habitat and what they eat, and their worldwide distribution and, and what the threats are. And uh, the spokesperson for the zoo uh, was, was interviewed and spoke to the goal behind this exhibit. And this is what she said that the purpose of the exhibit was to downplay the uniqueness of human beings as a species. She went on to say this. Seeing people in a different environment, among other animals, teaches members of the public that the the human is just another primate. And then then one of the, the guys that was in the exhibit, that participated in this exhibit, he was interviewed as well, and he said this. A lot of people think that humans are above other animals. When they see humans as animals here, it kind of reminds them that we're not that special. Now, your view of humanity will determine your understanding of the purpose and the design of humanity. So if you have a low view of humanity, you're going to have a low view of the design and the purpose of humanity in the world. The question is, what is the right view? Spoiler alert, the London Zoo did not get it correct. Psalm 8 tells us something very different on what the role of humanity is. And that's the question we're gonna answer, is what is your role in the world? First, you're a bearer of God's image. When you look at the first four verses of Psalm 8, you see this incredible contrast. Verse one opens with the majesty and the glory of God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then verse two speaks of the broken human condition. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. And you say, how does that speak to the broken human condition? What does it mean? Well, babies and infants are the epitome of weakness and vulnerability. And the avenger, the foe, the enemy, that's the epitome of of greed, oppression, and ruthless power. And so even in verse two, you see the the brokenness of humanity, but you, you see God through this psalm speaking into his care for the broken, his care for the vulnerable and the weak. Verses three and four, just repeat this contrast. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I look at all this, the moon, the stars, the sun, the, the grandeur of creation, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. That the word man here is poetic for the weakness and the vulnerability of mankind, of human beings. Human beings are a particular, they receive particular attention. They're objects of God's attention because human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Pinnacle of creation. You go back to Genesis 1, God creates the, the land and the water, the trees and the plants, the moon, the stars, the, the fish, the animals. And after each of those creative acts, he says, It's good. But then you get to the the last, final, creative act of God. And that's when he creates man. He creates one. He creates humankind. And he says it was very good. Very good. But that's the pinnacle of God's creation. So being an image bearer, first and foremost, being an image bearer means understanding that you have been created by God with great care great intentionality, that you're not a biological accident, that you're not some conglomeration of elements out of some primordial sludge, that you were created by God very specifically, very intentionally, with great care. You say, I I, I get that. I know that. But let me say, do you really know that? Do you live out of that truth? Do you live out of the truth that God with great care and detail picked your hair color? That he, he picked the shape of your nose? That he picked and designed you with the color of your skin, the shape of your body? You see, we, we say, yeah, I know I'm created by God, but, but here's the evidence that we don't actually live out of that when we start playing the comparison game. Say, oh, I wish I had that person's nose. I don't like my nose. I wish I had their hair. I wish I I had their body. God created you with great intentionality and great joy and great precision. And so being an image bearer starts there, that you're created, fashioned by the hand of God. But it also means understanding you're created with dignity. You're created with care and intentionality. You're created with dignity. Look at verse five. You have made him, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So little lower than the heavenly beings, that's speaking to human beings, not divine. We're not divine. We're not God. We're a little lower, but crowned with glory and honor, made in his image. That word glory in verse five is different than the word glory in verse one. And it's different because we are not divine But it's also similar because we are created in the image of God. That we're created in the image of God. You see this in the creation account. It's it's fascinating. That man was created out of the dust of the earth, but created in the image of God. That human beings serve and exist in the space between earth, this world, and between God, in his image, but made out of the dust of the earth that were between God and this world. And that dignity of humankind, that being made in the image of God did not go away at the fall. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, the image of God was shattered, but it did not go away. And so today, every person on the face of the earth bears the image of God, albeit shattered. And some of that, Shattering is more visible in some circumstances than others. The image of God more deeply shattered in Adolf Hitler, visibly, than in Mother Teresa. Right? But both bear the image of God. Right? Both are image bearers. Humanity has dignity because humanity is made in the image of God. Animals were not made in the image of God. When God in Genesis 2 spoke into, spoke the breath of life into Adam, but he spoke the breath of his life into man. Didn't do that with the animals. What's your role in the world? It's to bear God's image and to treat others as image bearers. The late Eugene Peterson, author, pastor, he he notes how it's easy to look at a mountain view view or the Grand Canyon, or a sunrise and a sunset, and just be in absolute awe of God's creation. But he says we forget oftentimes what is right in front of us. And he tells a story when he was teaching at a college how one of his students, who, who was a distance away, a long way away, would take a bus every morning from his home into the college. And Peterson remarks how uh, this, this guy left his house in the morning And he told his wife, he said, honey, I'm gonna go immerse myself in God's creation today. And then he left. Next day, same thing. I'm gonna go immerse myself in God's creation. Finally got the third day and he said it and his wife finally said, would you please go to class? Like it's okay to go take a nature walk in the woods and go watch the sunrise. That's all good. But would you go to class? And he said, I have been going to class. She said, what's all this talk about immersing yourself in creation? And he said, what could be a setting more thick with God's creation than being on a crowded bus for 40 minutes on the way to class and on the way home with human beings that are created in the image of God, male and female? And Eugene Peterson concludes with this. We need to embrace the people around us. With the same delight as we do the hawk soaring above us and the violets blooming at our feet, men and women, children and the elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees and paralytics, the mentally impaired and the emotionally distraught, each a significant and sacred detail of nature of God's creation, image bearers. So here's the question. When you look at your neighbor, when you look at your coworker, when you look at your family member, what do you see? Now let me up the ante here. When you look at your neighbor who's difficult, when you look at your coworker who's difficult, or your boss who's really difficult, or a family member that's being really difficult, what do you see? Do you see an image bearer? Do you see the image of God? You see, that, that, it changes the way we treat people when we see people as image bearers. And it's actually the first step to evangelism because Genesis 1 and 2 precedes Genesis 3, that we are all made in the image of God. And when you see someone in the image of God, it changes the way that you treat them. Of course we're sinful. Of course we're broken. That's a given. But we're called to bear God's image and to treat others as image bearers. That's what it means. That's your role in the world. So bearer of God's image. Second, what's your role in the world? Caretaker of creation. Caretaker of creation. We're gonna look at the what and the how of caretaking. First, the what. Look at verse six. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, this is King David who wrote this psalm just reaffirming the truth of Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's the image of God, image bearer. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It has always been God's plan to have human beings rule over his world, to have dominion, to take care of his world. That has always been his plan. That's plan A and there's no plan B. And you'll see that flesh out as we move, move towards the end of this. It has always been God's plan to make a world and to put human beings over it. And when you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and the scope of dominion, the scope of responsibility that God gave our first parents. It's, it's amazing. God gave Adam the authority to name animals. And I love how it's worded in Genesis. Listen to this. It's stunning. Genesis 2, 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. God makes the animals and says, hey, Adam, what are you going to call them? That's authority. That's dominion. That's the what of caretaking, that we've been given dominion and authority over God's world. Now, how is that exercised? How does authority and dominion get exercised? Genesis 1 and 2 uses several words to describe the how. And and here are several of those words. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, work the garden, keep it. All of these words are getting at the task of making culture. See, God made the world. And God made the raw materials of the world and then gave them to man and said, hey, I want you to make something beautiful and redemptive out of this for my glory. I want you to make culture. So how'd that work in the garden? Gives our first parents fruits and vegetables and herbs and says, I want you to mix those together and make something tasty. God did not give Adam and Eve a a tasty cob salad. God gave Adam and Eve the ingredients to make a tasty cob salad. That's making culture. Or consider music. God did not give Adam and Eve musical instruments in the garden. He, gave, he didn't give them a recorder. I'll use that as an example, simple instrument. No, but he gave them trees. He gave them branches. He gave them wood that could be hollowed out, holes put in it, so when you blow through it, it makes sounds. He didn't give them drums. Didn't give them a drum set but he gave them rocks and branches and materials to make percussion. See, God gives the raw materials and says, now I want you to make music that's beautiful that glorifies me. That's culture making. God made the world, and he tells human beings, now you go make culture. I'm giving you the materials. You go make culture that is beautiful and redemptive and glorifying to me. Now, that explains, hope you see this, that explains why there's so much beauty in this world and so much ugliness and evil. God has wed the destiny of this world to humanity in a unique way. You have beautiful sexuality, practiced creatively, and passionately in the context of marriage. And you have that same sexuality exercised selfishly and grotesquely in the exploitation of minors in the sex trafficking industry. You have music that affirms the dignity of humankind and reflects the glory of God and you have music that demeans women and promotes violence and promotes oppression. You have medicine that's the product of amazing research that brings healing to the human body, and you have that same medication that is used to avoid some other kind of pain that becomes destructively addictive. Now, what accounts for this difference? What accounts for the difference When you see the raw materials God gives us, the gifts that he gives humanity, and you see it used beautifully, and you see it used grotesquely, what accounts for that difference? This brings us to the third point. Your role in this world is bearer of God's image, it's caretaker of creation, but finally, and most importantly, you're a fellow heir with Christ. You're a fellow heir with Christ. Who is this Psalm talking about? Well, it's clearly talking about mankind. We've already, that's what we've been exploring. But the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter two, quotes this psalm and directs the words to a specific man in history. Listen to Hebrews two, verses five to nine. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. As I said, God, from the very beginning, has committed to putting human beings in charge of his world. That's plan A. There is no plan B. All of humanity in the line of our first parents, Adam, failed drastically in this call. And so God sent another human being, a God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, to exercise right and healthy dominion over this world because God's plan has and will be for human beings to rule over this world. And so Jesus came as the second Adam to exercise dominion. Now, this paints a, different, a little different twist on the incarnation. We speak about the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, and we often talk about it, and this is right, that Jesus came to rescue us, to rescue us from sin, to rescue us out of this world. But what we see here in Hebrews 2 is that the incarnation, that the significance of it also is Jesus Christ coming as the man, the human being, to rule over his world rightly. There's There's a dominion significance that Jesus Christ rule over this world Christ's dominion over the world is the only dominion that leads to human flourishing. Any ruling over this world apart from Christ leads to breakdown, ultimately to death. And so that's why it's so important that when we, as image bearers, exercise dominion, we do it with Christ. Romans eight seventeen says we are fellow heirs with Christ. That means that Jesus Christ as heir has received all the Father has given him to rule over his world, and we are heirs with Christ. So we rule over God's world. We take care of God's world. We exercise dominion with Christ because any exercising dominion apart from Christ leads to breakdown, ultimately leads to death. Now, why is that the case? Hebrews 2 goes on to say that Christ tasted death for everyone, right? He tasted death for you, but it goes on to say that by him tasting death, by Jesus dying, that he has defeated the evil one and delivered us from lifelong slavery. Now, what's the slavery we've been delivered from? That's the slavery of exercising dominion over our own lives in this world for personal gain. That's the slavery. And that's what produces the difference in those examples I was giving you, the beauty and the ugliness, right? Dominion that's exercised for personal gain, which is the slavery that we're born into this world, is to, is to serve self. Everything out here around me exists to serve me. That produces ugliness. Dominion with Christ produces beauty. Now, what's this look like? I'm gonna give you a few concrete examples. Consider the dominion that's exercised in parenting. Your children were made by God, created by God. You didn't make your children. You participated to bring them about, but God created your children, and he gives them to you to steward, which means to nurture, to shape, to disciple. When you exercise dominion and care over your children apart from Christ, you will parent for personal gain. You will throw your kid in front of a TV for hours and hours or throw your kid in front of an iPad for hours and hours or in front of a video game for hours and hours to occupy them so that you can rest and do what you wanna do. And let me just say, I'm speaking to every parent in this room and you say, I don't do that. You understand the temptation to do that. And yes, you do it sometimes. So off the self-righteousness uh, pedestal. You know what, parenting is hard. Can someone say amen to that? Yes, it's hard. It's difficult. It requires sacrifice. It requires intentionality to take this child into shape and to nurture with great patience and great patience and more patience. And it is so tempting to say, you know what? You just go watch TV for eight hours. You have at it. I'm doing what I want to do. Or you go play video games forever and ever. I'm doing what I want to do. Now listen, I just give you an example where there's actually two failures of dominion. The first failure is failing to exercise care and dominion over your child. The second is failure to exercise dominion over media, which in our day and age is becoming so much more important in an issue in our media-saturated culture. There's nothing inherently wrong with media, TV, social media, internet, nothing inherently wrong with it. But if you exercise dominion over it apart from Christ, it will become destructive. It will become destructive because you'll use it for personal gain. That's the slavery from which Jesus has delivered us by his death. Or consider the Dominion that's exercised in sexuality. God has made human beings, male and female, to reproduce. That's clear in Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply. But as I tell every couple that comes through premarital counseling, God has created the body with parts for pleasure, for sheer pleasure. And when you exercise dominion over sexuality apart from Christ, it will lead to Personal gain at the expense of another. Personal gain at the expense of another. And again, you have two failures here. Failure to exercise dominion over sexuality, a gift given to us by God, and failure to care for the heart of another because it's done at the expense of another. You know that out of the 63,000 sexual abuse cases substantiated by the child protection services every year, 63,000, Every year, 80% of the perpetrators are parents. Now, now, dominion as parents, dominion over sexuality, now you have things intersecting, don't you? Exercising dominion apart from Christ will lead to breakdown. In the case of these sexual abuse cases, children that are victims of that are four times more likely to have drug abuse addictions growing up, three times more likely to have major depressive episodes as adults. I share that just for you to see a picture of, of human breakdown versus human flourishing and the breakdown that's a result of failing to exercise dominion with Christ, which keeps you from doing it for personal gain instead for the glory of God or consider the dominion that's exercised in work. God gives you some slice of the garden, whatever your job is. God has given you some slice of the garden to keep and to work and to take care of. If you exercise dominion over your vocation apart from Christ, you'll do it for personal gain. You'll do it either for pleasure and comfort, which leads to underwork, or you'll do it for reputation building, which leads to overwork. But you'll do it for some sort of personal gain or, or consider it a social issue like the environment. If you exercise dominion over a, a social issue like the environment, apart from Christ, at least the two extremes, right? We're called to care for the environment, for God's creation. We're called to do that as caretakers, as those exercising dominion. But if you do it apart from Christ, one of two extremes. On the one extreme, you will tear everything down, you will pave everything, you will maximize profit and exploit the earth. On the other extreme, you will spend inordinate amounts of time and money to protect a certain species to not go extinct, right? There's just these extremes apart from Christ. There's no balance. But in Christ, we care for God's world without worshiping it. Now, I've just given you some specific examples. And let me just remind you that the examples I've just shared, every one of us to some degree is guilty of of those abuses, of those exploitations outside of Christ, that we functionally exercise dominion apart from Christ all the time. And so, whether it's the, the, the parenting issue, right, and you're sitting here going, oh my goodness, I'm letting my child watch way too much TV, I'm video games, I've got to quit, oh, I feel awful, have I ruined my child, right, or over sexuality, the abuse of sexuality. Maybe you're sitting there going, oh my goodness. Feel off or work. You're underworking or overworking. It's all for personal gain. Listen, we're all guilty. And that's why what Jesus has done is so important as the one who exercises right dominion. He tasted death, as Hebrew 2 says, for you. That where you have failed and what you're convicted on right now, he nailed to the cross it was put on his shoulders so that he could put it to death that you're forgiven that your old self has been crucified and buried and christ has taken that sin and that exploitation and that abuse that all of us to some degree are guilty of and he is forgiven and then he rose from the dead and has raised you up as a new creation with a new heart that has new desires still conflicted until he returns with the old self, but new desires that say, I want to glorify God in my parenting. I want to glorify God in sexuality. I want to glorify God in my work. I want to glorify God in social issues and, and how I interact with my neighbors and the world around me. Right? Jesus has done that. He's given you a new heart to respond to him. And he's assured you the ways you have failed have been forgiven. Irenaeus was a bishop who lived in the second century. And he's famous for this quote. The glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God. That's how Psalm 8 starts and finishes. How majestic is your name? Ends with how majestic is your name? It starts and ends with the glory of God. And then sandwiched in between is this picture of humanity fully alive of you fully alive as a bearer of God's image, as a caretaker of his world, his creation, and as a fellow heir with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess, every one of us, that we have failed to exercise dominion in a healthy way for your glory, that we have exercised it for personal gain. We confess that, and we rest assured in the promise, Jesus, that you tasted death for those very acts of sin and idolatry and exploitation. Overwhelmed by the forgiveness that you have given in your son, Jesus. Father, we long with new hearts, united with the risen Christ, we long to be people who exercise dominion well. As parents in the workplace, over social issues, as we engage in the public sphere, would you help us to be image bearers and would you help us to see our neighbors as those who bear your image, though shatter? And would it change the way that we treat them, the way that we love them, the way that we approach them, even the starting point of where we share the gospel in affirming their dignity in Christ? Their dignity as an image bearer. Father, we've talked a lot about independence and dependence over the last couple of months. And we see it here again that we're called to be fellow heirs with Christ. Would you help us to be dependent on Christ as you give us the task of ruling over some part of the garden that you've given us? Functionally, unite us to Christ so that we do it in a way that's glorifying to you and not for personal gain. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.